Well, for those of you that I've yet to meet, uh, my name is Prentice. I get the privilege to be the lead pastor here. And uh, today we start a new series called Restoration, as Pastor Megan talked about earlier. Now, uh, she had this video that she wanted to share with the kiddos. Uh, unfortunately, there were some things happening, uh, so we weren't able to do that. But her heart was uh, for all the kiddos and really the adults to know that as we talk about the idea of restoration, of, of race and faith, I know it's a loaded topic, that behind all that, uh, it's really about the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And uh, for those uh, that are new to faith, maybe uh, you are a, a kiddo, kiddo at heart, um, Pastor Megan's video was around what the Holy Spirit is. And, and I'm not going to sit here and unpack the whole thing right now, but just know that as we do the work of racial reconciliation and, adjust, and address racial justice, that the, the, the power that's moving within us to address that is the Spirit. It's who Jesus left when Jesus ascended back to heaven. Jesus says, I don't leave you alone. I give you the Holy Spirit. And it's through the Holy Spirit that we are empowered to, to tr tell the truth, to, to receive healing, to repent even. And so, again, if you're new to the church, if, you, I, if you're a kiddo, then we're so glad that you're here. And we're glad that the Holy Spirit is with you as the Holy Spirit is with the church. And so that's a little bit about what we will be talking about today as we launch this series called Restoration. Life in the Spirit Amidst Racism. It's a five-week series. Now, the beauty of this series is that it's not just Bethany West Seattle. This is not just a value uh, of who we are here, although it is. And I hope that if you've been around, the conversation around race is, is really nothing new. But what is incredible is that all six locations of Bethany, all throughout Seattle and even the east side, we're all talking about the same thing for the next five weeks. And really, I'm kind of just a messenger uh, because the heavy work has all, was already done by, uh, by Pastor uh, Taylor and Pastor Megan and, and a whole team of MRJ, our Ministry of Justice and Reconciliation folks, to help the teaching pastors. You'll hear different voices throughout the next few weeks to help us unpack what this means. And, and so what I would like us to do right now is I want you to just close your eyes. Close your eyes with me. And I want you to take a deep breath. And I want you to open your eyes. And I want you to feel disarmed as we talk about this loaded topic. Now, many of us, we have different experiences with race. Maybe you've experienced hate and, and hurt and trauma. And maybe you have been the one that perpetuated it. And even that, I want to remove all the shame around that and recenter ourselves at the foot of the cross. Maybe there's something in between where there's apathy. Maybe uh, you have the privilege to not have to worry about the conversation around race. And so you've never really had to navigate or wrestle through it, and that's okay. But my hope is that this morning is a start of a 
beautiful yet messy and difficult conversation. And my hope is that we are all here to say we're in it. And as I was telling the staff this morning, this conversation isn't just about race and the church. It's really about the Spirit moving and convicting us. And in the last two years and three years, and even though it's been many, many decades and centuries, uh, that race has been a, a challenging issue. It has been on the forefront of many of our minds in the last few years. And so as the church, I think it's our responsibility to address the things that are becoming heartaches in our community. And I would submit to you that racism is not only one of them, but it's one of the biggest ones. And so this morning, I hope you feel disarmed. That's, that's kind of the key word I want us to all just repeat to ourselves is just let our guards down and just allow the Spirit to convict us the way we need to be convicted. And not just sit in that conviction, but to also experience the transformation and the joy that God has for us. And hop on to the vision that God has for our world and in our society. And so I want to read from you Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. And I want you to experience and just envision the beauty of what God has in store for us here today and in the kingdom, in heaven. Here's what a glimpse of heaven looks like. Starting from verse 9, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Verse 11, And all, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have brought us here, really in all tribes and nations, in backgrounds and languages. And we thank you that you've brought us here to worship you on level grounds, together as one united in your spirit. And so, God, as people that believe in the power of prayer, we pray uh, for healing and restoration in our communities and our world. We pray for restoration, not just uh, on the inside, but on the outside in our communities. God, we pray for what's happened uh, even this weekend in Florida, in the southeast with the hurricane, God, that you would come around and bring restoration in tangible ways where people will come together and serve one another and that there will be healing in that land. God, we pray for Ukraine and the division that's there. We pray for an up, the uprise that's happening in Iran. 
God, we feel like these prayers are so trivial because we're on the opposite side of the globe and it feels like we're helpless, but may we believe that there's power in prayer and there's power in prayer that healing can come and, and being united can come in the midst of division. We thank you in your name we pray. Amen and amen. So I'll never forget it. And I can actually name the, the, the grade that I was in. I was in third grade. And I, and I don't really remember the context of which this arose, but I had a scuffle or an argument uh, with a classmate in third grade. And for the first time, I experienced my own personal uh, moment of racism where this, ch- this kid, and I was a kid as well, I'll never forget it. He said this in the middle of our conflict. He said, go back to where you came from. He said, go, he said Prentice, go back to where you came from. And, and at that moment, as just a child and not understanding the racialized uh, heaviness that came with that statement, I went home not even angry but more confused. Because the reality is, I was born and raised in Seattle. And so when he said, go back to where you came from, I was confused because I'm like, I'm, I'm actually from like two blocks away. Like I was literally born and raised in the hospital in downtown in this elementary school in Mount Lake Terrace, which is the Seattle area, for those of you not familiar. And I grew up in the same house in the last, you know, that was two blocks away. And so when he said, go back to where you came from, I said, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be then because this is where I am from. And so out of my confusion, I remember going to my parents, but particularly my mom, and I was like, Mom, and I, and I told her what happened, and I was like, this kid told me to go back to where I came from, and so I guess I'm home, and, and I'm here, right? And at that moment, I saw sadness just kind of overwhelm her. And I still, I was a little bit confused because I was like, Mom, what do you, what do you, what, why are you sad about this? And at that moment, she had to explain to me what happens, and it's a conversation that, at least in the Asian American experience, I've heard time and time over and over again from my peers, being, being, being experienced as someone that's othered, or uh, I guess in some call it a forever foreigner. And I remember as my mom was explained to me, it was because our family and myself, we were, were, were Korean, Korean-American, uh, that that's what the kid meant. And I remember going to the school next morning feeling so lonely and, and isolated. And again, it was a mixture at that point after I knew what was happening of anger, of confusion, of loneliness, of being rejected. It was my first encounter with racism that I could remember but I know that it wouldn't have been my last, and it wasn't. Now, I know, again, the, the conversation around race is heavy, uh, and, and there's a lot to talk about, and it can be tricky, especially in a church setting. And, and as we talk about race, again, we're really talking about the movement of the Spirit uh, speaking into what is relevant in our lives, 
I do want us to just name some of the things that we might be feeling as we talk about race, especially in the church. And maybe it's a sense of defensiveness. Because you may think that this doesn't apply to you or or maybe somewhere along the line that you might feel like you're being accused of something. Uh, So you feel a sense of defensiveness because I know where this is going to go. Whenever we talk about racism, it's about, you know, for example, about white people in majority culture and power. And I know this is going to, you know, be all about me or you or whatever it is. I know that there's a sense of defensiveness. Again, if you are feeling a sense of defensiveness, I want to encourage you. My hope is that this is a safe space where we can navigate this. So be disarmed. Drop your defensiveness or your defensive mechanism because we're all in this together. Maybe you feel a sense of apathy, again, because you don't think this applies to you because you're telling yourself, I've never called someone a racial slur. I've never been, you know, part of a hate organization. You know, I, I've, I've never showed violence or a hatred towards a, an ethnic group. And so because I've never done that, I've never done name calling, I've never been a part of the KKK, I've never burned crosses on someone's yard or, or whatever it is. And so maybe you're like, you know what? So therefore it doesn't apply to me. I just want to remind you that the reality it does, this affects everybody because everybody was created in the image of God differently, diversely. And so because of that diversity, racial justice and racial injustice applies to all of us. So maybe you are feeling defensive. Maybe you're feeling apathy. Maybe you're feeling frustration. And I've heard this a lot in the church because I've heard from both sides, every side, where I have, I've had people leave Bethany, West Seattle, and even the greater Bethany churches because they say, Prentice, uh, Bethany talks too much about race, and, and why are you making this political? Why are you talking about politics in the church? And so they get frustrated because they, for some whatever reason, maybe this is you and that's okay, but there's an association with this conversation about racism and politics. And now I know that, you know, the word race is heavy. It's in the news. It's in headlines. It's being debated within political parties. I get it. But I also want to remind you that it's bigger than politics. And so I hear, Prentice, why are you talking about politics? It's too much. I'm going to a different church. And then on the other side, I hear people say, Prentice, I'm going to a different church because you're not talking enough about race. I want to hear more. This is a big topic in our church, and your your church, our church, is too silent. So I'm out of here. And so from both sides, I hear people being frustrated because of too much conversation around race or not enough and become so politicized. And I just want to say this, that the kingdom of God critiques every single side. This isn't about left or right, Republican or Democrat, conservative or progressive, or anything in between. Because I assure you, if you come in with that attitude and say, and, and claim the reasons why the God is on your side and your political affiliation or your ideologies, I promise you, you will be disappointed because the kingdom of God, the gospel, the good news of Jesus critiques 
every side and every angle and every worldview ideology that you might come with. And so my, my challenge and my encouragement to you is that within your defensiveness or your apathy or your frustration, you would just open up your hands and this is a prayer for myself that we as a church would open up our hands and see what God has to say around the sin of racism. Because racism in pursuing justice is not just a political issue or an ideological issue. It's a kingdom issue. It's a discipleship issue. And maybe some of us, we've experienced trauma. And you can experience this no matter what ethnic group you are. Because you yourself have experienced pain in this area, and I get it, it's hard to talk about. It's like ripping open a scab or a Band-Aid. But it must be addressed, and it must be named as we tell the truth about what God has and what God wants for God's church and community in the world. And maybe some of you might not experience defensiveness or apathy or frustration or trauma, but maybe just pure hopelessness, especially in the last few years that we've had. It's like day after day, we see the news article after news article. We hear stories. We see division. We see posts on Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is. And you say, you know what? This is hopeless. There's too much going on. I'm just going to, you know, whatever happens, happens. Or, you know, and there's some sides where, you know what, we're just, when we get to heaven, and this, this is true, when we get to heaven, things are going to be A-okay, and we're all going to get along. And so, you know what, for right now, my time on this earth, I'm just going to experience this, this lull, this, this hopelessness, and just, I can't wait to go to heaven. And, and although there is a reality in that, yes, as a people of God, we have not just this life to live, but the life after this to enjoy the perfection that God has created in God's kingdom. And it matters today. And so if you feel any of these, and may, or maybe something different, that's not even on the list, like I do, I experience this as well. I just want to tell you that is okay. Regardless of what you feel, know that this is an area, though, that God cares about. And regardless of what you feel on this list, just know that God wants to heal your hurt and the hurt of our community. God wants to reconcile a divided church, a divided world. God wants us to repent and confess. And God wants to forgive us for the ways that we have failed without, I repeat, without the shame that's oftentimes attached to it. And God calls us, the church, to be the transforming hope for the ache caused by racism. And I think what could be helpful in, in this effort for us to just be disarmed uh, is to go over a few definitions. And I'm not saying this is the only definition of each word, but just so we can all have a framework of what we are talking about and really what I'm talking about so we can all be aligned. And just, and just know, know this, that oftentimes I hear the biggest debates and the biggest arguments around two people as it pertains to race. And I look back and I can't help but to say, hey, guess what? We're arguing right now or you're arguing right now and having these hot debates and even name calling and all these things. But guess what? 
we aren't even talking about the same thing. We don't even know what we're arguing about. We're using, uh, we're defining things differently. So no wonder that things get personal and heated and defensive and, and all these things. And, and I just wanted to say, maybe if we came off and we started on the same page and aligned with the same words, then maybe this conversation gets a little easier or more palatable. And so there's, there's five words, and really this is the work of uh, the MRJR team that I want us to go over so we can be all on the same page. And no, today we're playing the long game. Out of a five-week series, this morning really is about setting up a framework of God moving in this issue around the Holy Spirit convicting us and, and calling us to do something about racism in our communities. And so the first word I want us to be on the same page with is this word ethnicity. What does it mean? What does ethnicity mean? And, and we define ethnicity as this, a common cultural heritage that is maintained by a group of people that, dis, that, is distinguished, that distinguishes them from others through language, social views, common history, rituals, characteristics, customs, and beliefs. Ethnicity, as uh, Pastor Rich Viota says, is a good thing. Ethnicity is how we were created differently. For example, I am Korean. This is my ethnicity. And I'm thankful for the, for the ways that God has created me and my, and my family and, and all of you. And so I've had conversations where people, well-intended people, say to me, Prentice, I just want you to know that when I see you, I don't see color. Like, I don't see color. And I totally get what they're trying to do. Uh, what, what, what this person and what these people are trying to say is that for this person, r ethnicity, race, doesn't dictate how this person might treat somebody. I get it. That's a good thought. But my desire and my hope is that we can actually honor and appreciate God's diversity in the world, particularly and especially ethnicities. So I want you to see my color. I want you to know that I'm Korean and the culture that I'm attached to. For those of you, I, there's many times where, and not to be stereotypical, but I'll ask my white friends and I'll say, hey, what ethnicity are you? And they would oftentimes say, I'm white. And, and I would say, yes, and you probably have an origin. You probably have a family uh, line of history of where you are from, an ethnic background. And for those of you, hey, no shame if you don't know what that is, but maybe some homework you can do throughout the series is to ask questions, uh, maybe to your family, maybe to figure out more of what your ethnic background is, so that way, as a community, we can value and honor and appreciate you as we appreciate and honor each other. Ethnicity is a good thing that God created in God's diverse kingdom. Second, I want to look at the word culture. It's the customs, beliefs, social forms, and material traits of a particular ethnic, racial, religious, or social group. So, for example, I am Korean. That's my ethnicity. But culturally, I, I wouldn't say that I'm really Korean because if you saw a guy my age and my life stage in Korea right now, we would be probably very different. I would say culturally, I am American. Culturally, even more than that, I would say I am 
a Seattleite. And for many of you, you have your own cultures that you are associated with. And so I would say, culturally, I'm, I'm a product of the Pacific Northwest. I'm a Seattleite. I drink a lot of coffee. It's part of my culture. I don't use an umbrella, because if I use an umbrella in Seattle, you are deemed as a tourist. And I don't want to do that. I'm from Seattle. I'm a Seattleite. Uh, I'm not wearing a flannel today, but oftentimes I wear a flannel. And so culturally, it's these things that I'm associated with right now. Then I want to talk about this idea of race. Race is a socially constructed and socially empowered term used to identify a people group based on shared physical characteristics, such as hair, eyes, skin color, body shape, and etc. Race is a socially constructed thing. It was, and I would call it a technology that people invented to categorize people groups in order to elevate one race and to uh, push down and marginalize and oppress other races. It was used as defining markers to say what is superior and what is inferior. Race is a socially constructed thing that has nothing to do with science, biology, it has nothing to do with the way that God intended for humanity as God created people. And so we get to the fourth word, racism. Racism, I want to make it easy and say it's prejudice plus power. And really, we can even define this as systemic racism. It's not just a, an idea that I don't like you because of particular traits that you have based on your race, but because of your race and, and the things that I categorize you with, because you have these certain features, I'm going to use the power to create you as an inferior status. And so, for example, of racism, how ra racism was a product uh, of slavery, because racism said, with prejudice and power, that we were able to create systems and structures to oppress people based on their race. And as an outcome, there was slavery. There was Jim Crow laws. There was a Holocaust. There was a Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 and, and so forth. There was uh, oppression and, and removal of indigenous groups in their own land. Because what happened was that the majority culture would say that because you have these differences, that you have these traits, you are put in this racial category, and this racial category is inferior to the superior category here in North America, in the West. It is whiteness. I know that might be hard to hear, but historically speaking, the power had to do with the majority culture, and the majority culture has been, at least in the United States and the West, have been white, whiteness, white people. Now, I still, I want us to be disarmed. I don't want us to hide into shame or defensiveness or anger or frustration or even apathy, because the reality is that no matter what ethnic group you define yourself as, whether you are white or Asian American or African American or Latino or whatever it is, indigenous, we all have a part to play together to share God's heart and to bring restoration to where we are divided. 
And so again, when we talk about racism, though, I want us to get one thing clear, is that it's not just about racial slurs. It's not just about burning crosses or the KKK, but it's also about the systems and policies that power plus prejudice has created. So I want us to show, I want to show you this image. Again, this is an image created, there's images just like this all over, but this is specifically from Rich Vallotis, created in 2017. He's a pastor at a church called New Life in New York. And oftentimes, this is what we, this is what we experience when it comes to racism. You see the iceberg, but oftentimes, we only think of racism as the tip of the iceberg, right? Like racial slurs, swastikas, lynching, hate crimes, and all these things. And, and this is definitely a socially unacceptable uh, form of racism, overt racism. And so for many of us that show apathy or even uh, indignation, we say, you know what, because I don't do any of the things that are on top of the iceberg, this doesn't really apply to me. We don't even have a problem. What are we doing wasting our time talking about this? This is all politics. And, and what I want to say is if your idea of racism is only on this individual level, which I would say also needs to be addressed, and it's also true, but it's not the holistic picture of what we mean by racism. And so obviously when we talk about how many things are racialized and many things are racist, and I know that it could also be overused, and I get that. I'm not going to go there right now, but what I want to talk about is there's oftentimes arguments and battles because one group is talking about the tip of the iceberg, and the other group is talking about the bottom of the iceberg. Notice that there's two different conversations that are being battled out. Hey, look, don't call me racist. I didn't ever drop the, the N-word, or I never drew a swastika or lynched anyone or did any hate crimes. Quit telling me I'm doing these things. That's not me. That's not my family. And there's arguments and frustration that are happening when the whole time there's other people uh, experiencing racism is saying, you know what, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about actually the bottom of the iceberg where there's redlining. Redlining it was something prominent even in Seattle up until 1970s where people of color weren't even allowed to get certain mortgages in certain areas because of the color of their skin. And you would think that it ends there, but guess what? Housing and owning property is a starting point of generational wealth. And so when we see poverty, we can't always just say, well, it's because people are lazy. It's because people aren't working hard. It's because people are, have all these issues or this and that. And may, that might be so in certain cases, but we can't forget and dismiss that it's because of systemic racism that is a product of the poverty that we see. Because generational wealth was not able to begin because of the rejection of those mortgages and loans. That's what redlining is. And it happened all throughout Seattle. You can even Google redlining Seattle. And it's literally a red line around all the, the good properties that only white people can live in. There's housing discrimination. There's hiring discrimination based on names. Racist jokes, implicit biases, presumption of guilt, police brutality, racial profiling, mass incarceration. Now, I know some of these might be jarring to hear, and, and, I, and I get it. It is for me, too, and this isn't hating on, on any 
vocation. This isn't hating on a racial group. This is just us having a fundamental understanding of what we're talking about. So we can breathe, take a deep breath, so we can let down our guards and just name the things that need to be named and invite Jesus into the places that Jesus needs to be. And really the last one I want to talk about quickly is reconciliation, the journey of joining Jesus in restoring broken relationships and systems through truth-telling, repentance, and forgiveness to reveal God's kingdom. And the reason I want to do this is because certainly as followers of Jesus, we must believe, obviously, that overt racism is hateful, evil, and something that we need to believe is antithetical to the good news of Jesus. But, or and, if we also believe that uh, there's a theology of imago Dei, that every person in this room, in this world, in our communities, whether they eat different foods or speak different languages or come, different, come from different countries, that every human being is the imago Dei, created in the image of God. And if everybody is created in the image of God, may we as the church be a catalyst towards all human flourishing. So when people are experiencing systemic racism, a rejection, a hate, whether it's overt or covert or underneath or bottom of the iceberg or top of the iceberg, we as followers of Jesus must care about this because this is what God cares about. In the book, Deeply Formed Life by, again, Rich Viotas, he, said that, he says this, when the essence of the gospel is stripped down to the afterlife or to a glorious but strictly individual personal decision of faith, it's not what Jesus described as the good news about his kingdom come. And predictably, there's no real urgency to see our lives oriented towards a more loving and just way of being in the world. At the core of the gospel, then, is the making right of all things through Jesus. The gospel cannot just be this individual thing about just me and God. As long as I'm good with God, then everything is good. No, it is a collective human thing. And at the core, as Pastor Rich says, of the gospel then is making right of all things through Jesus. And so the way we do this is by joining God in what God is already doing when it comes to individual and systemic racism. God's already on the move. God is already having a heart for the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, the rejected. And as people of God, as God's church, we are to come alongside God and what God is already doing. So when we see news about George Floyd, about elderly Asians being attacked, about poverty and discrimination in our, in our criminal justice system, again, including mass incarceration, when it comes to unjust immigration laws and, and uh, disparity in education, this is something we cannot ignore, even if it doesn't directly impact you, because it is something that God cares about. And again, sometimes we ignore racism at best because it doesn't directly impact us. Or at worst, we, even myself included, we, we unknowingly even perpetuate it. 
We vote for it. We advocate for it. We long for the policies and systems and powers to uphold our own interests, even at the sake of keeping the status quo. But my friends, this is not God's vision for humanity. And as a people of God, we need a new vision. And this is why I love Revelation chapter 7. Now, this series won't be an exposition of Revelation, so we're not going to go verse by verse necessarily, but it does help with setting up our framework. Now, in the beginning of Revelation, it says that there's a man named John who was essentially exiled to the island of Patmos, which is a little island between modern-day Turkey and Greece. And, and John was exiled uh, because he was talking about Jesus. Now, most scholars, they don't know whether that this is, if this is the same John as John the Apostle or a different John called John of Patmos. But nonetheless, there was a man named John who was exiled, who got this vision while he was on the island of Patmos. He got this vision from God. Uh, he got a revelation, hence the, the book is called Revelation. And in the Greek, the Greek word for revelation is apocalypto, apocalypto. And so this is what we'd call an apocalyptic genre, a genre where God gives vision and revelation of what the kingdom is like, where people have gotten it wrong, what people need to do, this prophetic message. And so John, while he is in the island of Patmos, this, uh, God shows up and gives John a revelation of what heaven is like. And, and it's interesting because the first few chapters of Revelation starts off with addressing Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and he talks about that this kingdom of God, and this isn't a literal number, will have 144,000 people. And so because in chapter 6, it talks about 12 tribes. Uh, and in each tribe, there's 12,000 people. And so in totality, there's 144,000 people that will experience the kingdom of God. But the story doesn't end there in Revelation chapter 6. Then in, uh, uh, or sorry, in chapter, yeah, in chapter 6. Because in verse 7, or in chapter 7, verse 9, God essentially says, I'm not finished. And he says, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand. They cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits at the throne, uh, worshiping the, sits at the throne and to the Lamb. So there's this shift from, okay, the, the kingdom of God is about this group, the, 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 the tribe of Israel, or Israel with all 12 tribes, that is what the kingdom of God looks like. But wait a minute, in, in John's vision that God gave him, said this, well, wait a minute, the kingdom is expansive. It's bigger than that. It's actually a multitude of people with different tribes from different nations and different languages, standing, worshiping God, being centered around not themselves, not being centered around an ethnic group, not being centered around power or privilege, but centered around the worship of Jesus. Every nation, tribe, people, and language were worshiping God in the midst of the diversity. The spirit was moving, and everybody was on equal grounds. 
And then in verse 11, it says, All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down to their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor. And get this, and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. No longer is there a fight for self-preservation, for power, for strength, for victory, because all of that is found at the worship of Jesus. Yes, in this series, we will talk about tangible ways to address racism that is grounded in Scripture and empowered by the Spirit. But may we not forget this morning that the invitation is to live in this tension. And it's the tension of lament and hope. Yes, there will be tangible ways of things that we can do and should do as followers of Jesus, but before we even get there, may we have this vision that God has for God's kingdom, and that's for every tribe and nation to come and worship together, relinquishing power, relinquishing strength, relinquishing status quo, and equally on, uh, on the same level, on the same ground, bowing our heads on our knees, worshiping Jesus. That is what God calls us to do. And what that will require is for us to be okay with the lament because of the pain and the hurt that racism has caused, holding that in tandem with hope of what the victory of the cross shows. Scholar and theologian named Soon Chao Ra, who's, he was formerly at North Park, he's at Fuller Seminary now. Uh, he says this in his book, he has a book called Prophetic Lament, a call for justice in troubled times. He says this, the American church, that includes myself, this includes our church, then the American church avoids lament. The power of lament is minimized and the underlying narrative of suffering that requires lament is lost. But absence doesn't make the heart grow fonder. Absence makes the heart forget. The absence of lament in the liturgy of the American church results in the loss of memory. We forget the necessity of lamenting over suffering and pain. We forget the reality of suffering and pain. May we not forget to lament at what is happening, what has happened, what people have experienced as it as it has to do with race and rejection and isolation and trauma and the systems that continually oppress and, and marginalize people, may we not forget, may we lament, but also may we, on the other hand, have hope that God is up to something and that up to something is the church that God is using and moving through. In Romans chapter 12, Paul talks about rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And I believe this is an area that Paul is calling us to. Again, lament and hope. This can be held in tandem. God is moving. And because of hope, we can also live in joy. I love Willie Jennings' Uh, Dr. Willie Jennings, who's a theologian and scholar as well, he wrote the commentary on Acts. He says, joy is an act of resistance against despair. So yes, racism is real. Yes, rejection is real. But may we, may we lament, 
name and address, even within our own selves. And on the other hand, have hope, have joy, because joy is an act of resistance against despair. And so as I invite the worship team back up, maybe this is a moment that we just get honest with ourselves. And in fact, could you just all bow your heads and just close your eyes just so you feel not people looking at you as we talk about this heavy topic of race. Maybe this is a moment where we confess and say, God, this is how I've played a part in racism. And I know that that's a loaded word, but maybe we can define it as, God, I have looked down on other people because of the way that they've looked. I've secretly hoped that certain privileges will be only held for me so I can benefit. Maybe the confession is, God, yes, I, I straight up, I just look down on people that look differently than me. I laugh. I make jokes. I think lesser Oh, or, or God, maybe the conversation is, God, I, I have been silent in the face of injustice.